You're listening to a message from our Sunday morning service at Hayes Hills Baptist Church, where we seek to bring life-changing hope to an ever-changing people through the unchanging gospel. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit hayeshills.com. Our prayer is that this message would serve to equip and empower you to live as a follower of Jesus in conjunction with your belonging to a local body of believers. Well, we're currently walking through our series on 1 Corinthians, which we'll be in for the majority of this year. We'd encourage you to follow along, and we hope that this message serves as a blessing to you. And uh, my task for this morning is to preach from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which deals with the topic of women wearing head coverings in worship. And it is, it's a, it's a difficult text, it's a difficult topic, and I have been dreading preaching it for weeks. Uh, I've been working on this for several weeks, and a couple weeks back, I, I said to my wife one morning as we were getting ready, I, I just said, you know, Lindsay, I... I really don't want to have to preach this sermon on 1 Corinthians 11 and women wearing head coverings. And she said, Aaron, I hate to break it to you. We don't want to listen to a sermon from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about women wearing head coverings in worship. And, and I think both of those things are true. I think I don't want to preach this sermon. And I, I think you don't want to listen to it. And yet, here we are. I'm going to preach a sermon on 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and the topic of women wearing head coverings in worship. And, and why are we doing that? And, and the reason we're doing this is because here at Hayes Hills, we believe in the authority of God's Word. And when we say we believe in the authority of God's Word, we mean all of it. Not just the parts that we like, not just the parts that are easy to understand, not just the parts that leave us feeling motivated and inspired in the morning, but all of God's Word, especially the parts that say things we don't like, that are difficult to hear in our culture, that that are tough to understand. And so my prayer has been over the last several weeks that this morning's sermon, it's It's going to be tough. It's going to be work. That's what it is to understand a hard text. But one of the ways we demonstrate our love to the Lord is by listening to a hard text like this. We demonstrate that we we sit under his authority and the authority of his word. And so I have been praying that we would leave this space this morning not feeling bored or dry or confused, but that we would leave this place having a greater understanding of what exactly is being said here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we would leave with increased confidence that we as, a, as individuals and most importantly as a church believe in the authority of God's word and are seeking to submit ourselves to it. And so I want to encourage you, if you've got your Bible with you, to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And if you have a digital device you can use to pull up the scriptures, I'd encourage you to search for the ESV, the English Standard Version. That's the translation I'm going to be reading from this morning. And so if you search 1 Corinthians ESV, you'll be able to follow along with me. And I say you'll be able to follow along with me. It's going to be a tough, a tough ride this morning, but I'm, I'm praying you'll be able to track with me. Uh, it's going to be a little more heady than normal. And... Um, but I'm praying that the Lord will give us understanding. Um, the, the reason we 
we preach through books of the Bible here at Hayes Hills is so that we're forced to deal with texts like this. We're fast-forwarding in our study of 1 Corinthians uh, because this evening we're going to have a congregational meeting. You'll hear more about that later in the service. Um, but the elders just thought it would be wise in advance of that meeting for, for us to take some time to preach through one of the relevant texts. And so uh, here we are this morning. And I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 2. Apostle Paul writes, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so now man is born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. And the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And this is God's word to us today. And the reason we say that each and every Sunday as we read God's word together is because we come to a text like this and we wonder like, hey, is this just like some cultural relic from a bygone era that we can just kind of spit out and say, ah, we're going to skip over those verses and move on? And what we want to understand is, no, every portion of scripture rooted in culture, yes, has some timeless principles, some truth that we must submit to the authority of as followers of Jesus Christ. And so we come to a text like this, and we look at it, and it's tough, isn't it? I mean, if we can't just say, hey, this is from a bygone era, doesn't that mean that every woman here this morning should be wearing a head covering? And what about this bit about men and not having long hair and women not having short hair? Like, does that mean, like, how long does my hair need to be? How short? Uh, what about this bit in verse 10 about women need to cover their heads because of the angels? Like, there's just a lot here that is tough. And so my prayer is that we would be able to leave this place, maybe not with all of our questions answered, but hopefully with a better understanding of what God is saying to us today through this text. And here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we arrive at a section from chapters 11 through chapter 14 where the Apostle Paul is teaching the church at Corinth about order in gathered worship. And so in uh, verses 2 through 16, he's dealing with uh, when men or women pray or prophesy in the assembly. Uh, in verses 17 and following, he shifts his attention to the Lord's Supper. 
And then in chapters 12 through 14, he's dealing with how spiritual gifts ought to be handled when the church gathers for worship. Now, to understand the section we're going to look at here in verses 2 through 16, we really have to spend the bulk of our time translating verse 3. You've got to answer some questions about how you translate verse 3 because that has enormous impact on how you understand the rest of the text. And so the first question you've got to answer in verse 3 is how you translate the Greek word kephale. And I know you don't care about that word, but the reason I speak it is because there might be some of you, you're going you're gonna to do some outside reading and you're going to come across it and you might have some questions. There, there is no word, I, I don't believe there's a single word in the New Testament that has had more ink spilled over it than how you translate kephale here in verse Uh, The ESV translates it as head. That's the way it's typically translated. But over the last 40 years or so, there's been an increasing push to translate the word as source, the way uh, the head of a river is its source. And the debate there is whether what Paul is discussing in this text is about authority or origin. You get that? Authority or origin. So the, the folks who are saying, hey, this shouldn't be translated head, they're doing so because they're saying, hey, it's not about authority, it's about origin. Um, man finds his source, his origin in God. Adam was created by God. Woman finds her origin in man came out of, uh, Eve came from Adam's rib. Uh, Jesus finds his origin, his source in the Father. Now, I don't think that's Correct, and I want to show you why for a couple of reasons. First, if you translate this word as source and make it about origin, you're teaching a Christological heresy known as Arianism. Uh, What Arianism states is that uh, God the Father at some time in, in the past created God the Son. That Jesus was created by the Father. That is a heresy. Jesus is God. He is eternal. Jesus always was, always is, and always will be. And so if you translate this as source, you're saying, hey, God the Father is the source of Jesus Christ. He's created the Son. That's Arianism. It's a heresy. You don't, you don't want to be a heretic, I promise you. Okay? The, the, the other reason I, th- I think that this can't be translated as source is because if you look at Greek lexicons, think dictionaries, You never find source as an option to translate this word. The predominant way this is translated is as head. And so I think what's being discussed here is, in some sense, the head. And the question is, okay, how how do we understand that? And the second translation question we got to answer in verse 3 is how you translate what Paul is dealing with, whether he's dealing very specifically with husbands and wives or more generally with men and women? And the reason that's an interpretive question is because the Greek word for man is the same word for husband, and the Greek word for wife is the same word for woman. So so you come across the word, and you've got to decide, should this word be translated as man or husband, as woman or wife? That makes sense? Now, what the ESV has chosen to do here in verse 3 is to say this is very specifically dealing with husbands and wives. Notice there, verse 3, the head of a wife is her husband. I don't think that's correct. 
I don't think Paul is dealing very specifically with just husbands and wives. I think he's actually dealing more broadly with men and women in general. And the reason I believe that is for a couple of reasons. First, it's inconsistent. Notice verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every, what's that word? Man. They've translated it as man, not as husband. Notice the head of every man, not husband, but man is Christ. The head of a wife is her, and now it's the very same word, but they've chosen to translate it as husband. But everywhere else in the text, we're going to see this word being used as man or woman. Notice, uh, for example, uh, verse 7, again, verse 8. So so just consistency in these verses themselves, I think, says we're dealing with men and women generally, broadly, not husbands and wives specifically. Secondly, it's dealing, it's giving instructions for what a woman is to do when she prays or prophesies. And if all he's doing is giving directions for what a married woman should do when she prays or prophesies, well, it feels a little weird to have rules for what a married woman needs to dress like, but then there are no rules for when an unmarried woman prophesies. And we know that unmarried women also prophesied because Philip's four daughters, for example, in Acts chapter 21, all prophesied. And so I think what's happening here is more broadly men and women, not specifically husbands and wives. Now, why would you want to translate it as husband and wife? Because if you just say the head of woman is man, that makes it sound like, doesn't it? Every woman is supposed to submit to every man. And it can sound like what's happening in verse 3 is that Paul is setting up a universal chain of command. It goes God the Father, God the Son, men, and women. And God the Father is at the top of the totem pole, and women are at the bottom. But I don't believe that's what Paul is doing here. My my argument is that what is happening in verse 3 is Paul is not setting up a universal chain of command. He is actually setting up a universal principle. Now, the reason I don't think he's setting up a universal chain of command in verse 3 is because if he were saying, hey, here's how it goes, fellas, God the Father, God the Son, men, women, whose name would you expect to find first in verse 3? God's. And you'd expect to find the women mentioned last. But notice that's not what happens in verse 3. God the Father isn't mentioned until the very end of the verse, and women are actually mentioned in the middle. And so, I don't think what's happening in verse 3 is a universal chain of command. Paul is setting up this universal principle, and it's a mouthful, but bear with me. Here's the principle. Paul is saying, every single person has a metaphorical head, and because everybody has a metaphorical head, what you do with your physical head in worship will reflect either positively or negatively on your metaphorical head. Okay, that's a It's a lot there, so let me restate that. Everybody has a metaphorical head. And so what you do with your physical head in worship will either reflect positively or negatively on your metaphorical head. Let me try to illustrate it. If you've got kids, there are times when you are really proud, aren't there? Like your kids do something and you feel a sense of pride. Now, you didn't do a thing. Why are you proud? Because what they do reflects upon you. There, there are times your kids, they, they do something dumb. I mean, dumb, dumb, dumb. And they make a big mistake, and you feel a sense of shame. Why? You're not the one who did the dumb thing. They did. But you feel shame because what they do, what? 
reflects upon you. You are their metaphorical head. The same is true at work with your boss or your company. What you do reflects upon them. And what Paul is setting up here in verse 3 is he is saying, everybody has a metaphorical head. And so what you do with your physical head in worship will either reflect upon your metaphorical head positively or negatively. And in that culture in first century Corinth, the head of a woman was man. If you were a married woman, what you did reflected positively or negatively upon your husband. If you were an unmarried woman, what you did reflected positively or negatively upon your father. And so, understanding that principle, we're going to try to now trace Paul's argument in verses 4 through 16. In verses 4 and 5, what Paul is saying is, because this is true, because everyone has a metaphorical head, what you do with your physical head in worship will reflect positively or negatively. Men should not cover their heads in worship. Women should cover their heads in worship. Now, before we look at why there's the difference here, I want us to make sure we see what they have in common. Uh, Paul is saying both men and women are going to do what? Pray and prophesy. And it's important, I think, for us to see this because in conservative evangelical churches, we, we can get really focused on the portions of Scripture that tell us what women cannot do. And, and we've got to focus on those. We've got to submit to the authority of those texts. But guess what? We've got to submit to all of Scripture, right? And so we also have to follow the teachings that tell us, hey, this is what you should expect women to do in worship. Men and women are to be active participants in worship. Men and women will pray, prophesy. But why the difference? Why should a man not cover his head? Well, the, the reason Paul doesn't want men to cover their heads is because if men were to cover their head in worship, they would look like pagans. Uh, do we have the image that we can uh, toss up here of the statue of Augustus? This is a statue actually discovered by archaeologists in Corinth. It's a statue of the emperor Augustus. And what Romans would do in that day is the men, they would go to these false temples where they would worship the, the cult of the emperor. And when they did, just like Augustus here, they would cover their head with their toga. See how his head is kind of covered with that toga? And it's the only time the men would raise the toga up over their head like that when they were going into these pagan temples. And so Paul is saying, men, if you go to worship with your head covered, you're going to look like the pagans. And, and it'll reflect poorly upon God the Father. People will not understand what's going on here. Conversely, he says, when a woman goes to worship, when she prays or prophesies, her head must be covered. Because if her head is uncovered, she's going to look sexually promiscuous. You see, in first century Corinth, in that culture, a woman never left her home without her head being covered. Because a woman out in public with her head uncovered was a signal that she was sexually available to any and all who were interested. And so that's one of the reasons why when a woman was found guilty of adultery, if she was unfaithful to her husband, one of the punishments was that they would shave her head as a sign of public shame. And while her head was, was shaven, or maybe the hair is just beginning to grow back, it was a public sign, hey, this woman is a sexual sinner. 
And so what, what Paul is saying is, hey, men, you can't cover your heads because you'll look like a pagan. Women, if you uncover your heads, you're going to send the wrong signal. But you can understand, can't you, why perhaps the women would have been confused in Corinth because the only time women would uncover their heads was when they were at home with their family. And where did the church meet in Corinth? In homes. And they called one another brother and sister. And so, so it's, I, I think it's not too hard to imagine that women would begin to think, well, I'm in a home. I call these people brother and sister in Christ. This is family. I can uncover my head. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Uh, because everybody has a, a metaphorical head, what you do with your physical head in worship will reflect positively or negatively. And, and you've got to follow the, the rules of propriety in the culture when you come to worship. Church is a public space. And so he, he writes there, notice verse 7. He says, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. And again, before we look at, at what the text says, I want us to be clear on what the text is not saying. Uh, here in verse 7, the text is not saying that only men are created in the image of God. Uh, Genesis 1 teaches us very clearly that all people, male and female, are created in God's image, worthy of, of equal dignity and respect. And so that's why in verse 7, notice he says that man is the image and glory of God, but woman, he doesn't say is the image of man. He doesn't say that. He leaves that out because she's in the image of God. But he says woman is the glory of man. Now, why the distinction? Why does he say man is the glory of God, woman is the glory of man? Well, he explains it in verses 8 and 9. He says here's the reality. When we were created... Woman was created from man and for man. And he's going to counterbalance that in verses 11 and 12. And he's going to say, now look, don't get it twisted, fellas. It's true. Every woman was created, or woman was originally created from man and for man. But today, every man is born of a woman. So don't, don't get too high on your horse, fellas. But the original creation matters. Men and women are not interchangeable. We, we've been created with distinct purposes. And he's saying, look, woman was created from man and for man, and that affects the way we see ourselves and we see one another. And that's why woman is the glory of man. Let me try to illustrate what that means with two phenomena, trophy wives and TV sitcoms. So, uh, you know, we, we, we understand kind of the stereotypical trophy wife, this, you know, old, rich dude marries some young, attractive woman. And, and why does he do that? I mean, he's past his sexual prime, but he marries this young, attractive woman because in our society, when, when people see her and her youth and her beauty, it somehow sends a message, hey, this guy is really successful. He's made it. She's a trophy wife. And that, that's an example on the extreme but I just believe every single man measures himself in part if he is married by who he is married to. You know, when I was looking for a wife, like, I'm super proud of my wife's academic success. And, and when I was looking for someone to marry, like, it was important 
to me that I found someone who was smart and had the grades to prove it. And I think the reason I had that desire was because I thought like, hey, if everybody knows that I'm with this intelligent woman, maybe they'll think I'm smarter than I actually am, you know? She'll reflect upon me. Every man measures himself in part by the woman that he's married to. She reflects upon him as part of his glory. We have trophy wives in our culture. We don't really have trophy husbands, do we? You see it play out in TV sitcoms, don't you? Why is it that the dad is always the out-of-shape, bumbling idiot, and the wife always has it together? Now, there are a lot of reasons there, but one, I believe, is because of plausibility. In our culture, we think, yeah, she can be an awesome woman and be married to that idiot. That doesn't reflect upon her at all. It just happens. But it wouldn't work the other way, would it? Because woman is the glory of man. And so what Paul is saying is, ladies, when you come to worship, you have to cover your head. But Because if you came with your head uncovered and, and people started getting the, the wrong idea or they, they started measuring you up, whatever they would say, wow, she's attractive or whatever, that glory, instead of being given to God where it rightly ought to go, it would go to her husband. And so you, you've got to attire yourself. You've got to be dressed in such a way that all attention and glory will be given to God and not to man. That's the argument here in verses 3 through 12. And then Paul says in verse 13, he says, okay, so judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? And he expects us to say, no, absolutely not. Then he says in verses 14 and 15, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, when Paul talks about nature here, he's not talking about like natural biology. There's nothing that makes a woman's hair naturally grow longer than a man's. What he's talking about is what was seen as natural in his culture. Like women grow their hair long and men keep their short. And so as, as we come to this text and we, we try to walk away from it, we've got some questions like, okay, does this mean that all women have to wear head coverings in church? Like we've been doing it wrong all this time. Does it mean that all women have to have long hair and all men short? And like how long is long and how short is short? Like what are the lines? But again, the, the idea isn't that this is some cultural principle we just leave it behind. Nor is it that these are the rules and, and we're given length of hair here. Instead, whenever we come to the Bible, there is always timeless truth, timeless principle we are to take away. So, for example, in the New Testament, we're told to greet one another with a holy kiss. Any of you, you know, greet some guest with a kiss this morning? I hope not because they were leaving quick. <laughs> Who are these people? But, but I hope... If you saw someone this morning, you greeted them with a warm, man, I'm so glad to see you. Maybe you shook their hand, right? There, there is a, a timeless principle in that command to greet one another with a holy kiss. Be hospitable, welcome them. And in the same way, as we walk away from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, what we see here is not that every woman needs to cover her head or else she's going to be seen as an adulteress. That's not our cultural principle, is it? 
But, but what we can walk away with is an understanding of, of a number of things. First, men and women are expected to pray and prophesy. Men and women are to be active participants in worship. We see that here in this text. We see, second, that, that we've got to dress when we come to worship in a way that doesn't blur the distinction of the genders. And so when, when you come to worship, it should be clear that you are the gender that God has created you to be. You shouldn't be trying to blur those lines. But when you come to worship, you should be dressed in such a way that you're not seeking to draw attention to yourself or to flaunt who you are or what you have. Instead, all attention ought to be given to the Lord. And that's what we walk away from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16 with. And my prayer is that as we leave a text that is a difficult topic, difficult to understand, we can leave knowing that we are committed to hear God's word, all of it. Not just the parts that we like, not just the parts that motivate us in the morning, but that to be a follower of Jesus is to say with our Lord, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. For all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the good